In the sutta, it talks, or the Buddha's talking about his awakening. And uh, I would try to say the Pali, but it's really hard to say. It's like the Are Panasana Sutta. It's Majjhima Nikaya 26, but it's entitled The Noble Quest. And to give you just a little bit of a background about this particular sutta, it's uh, understood by people who study the canon uh, academically and, and, and scholarly that it's, it's the oldest recorded account that we think, or that many people think, it's the oldest place in the canon where the Buddha is actually talking about what he awoken to, which I think is fascinating. So it's him giving uh, an example of this dharma that I have reached, so this idea of, of dharma, which is, which is a word that has, uh, to some degree, haunted me in, in, a, in a beautiful and tragic way for 25 years, really half of my life almost, more than half. Uh, and I always find myself revisiting these ideas because as a teacher, I really consider myself a Dharma teacher, which kind of means I'm a Buddhist teacher, and I feel a lot more uncomfortable as a Buddhist teacher than I do as a Dharma teacher because uh, Buddhism, of course, one of the world's religions, um, carries a lot of the problematic aspects that other religions do as well. And the farther back that we look, we see pretty clearly that the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism. He taught the Dharma. The Buddha didn't even call himself the Buddha. He didn't come to the Buddha until a thousand years after he died or something like that. And so Buddha, of course, just means to, to be awake. And so I think that the first thing I, I want to just kind of maybe give a picture of is, and I talked about it in the meditation, is this idea of freedom. And I think that the practice and, and the promise of Dharma is a kind of freedom, um, a freedom from suffering, we could say. But maybe that's not the end of the story. Of course we know that really in the teachings, uh, the Buddha talks about the, uh, the teaching of the First Noble Truth of Dukkha, so really the path for many of us actually really starts with this idea uh, of suffering. And the Buddha doesn't speak about suffering or dukkha in a way that is at all negative or derogatory. He just points out that there's a tragic dimension to the human experience that we don't really want to deal with. So he talks about freedom. There's really two sides of freedom, right? There's, there's freedom from something, right? There's the aspect of being free from something, but then there's being free to something. So there's Sometimes we don't finish the story. So we want, we want to be free from suffering, we want to be free from something, but what are we free to? What does that look like? In, in an actual embodied and very realistic kind of way. And I think my story has been the case, and most people I speak with in Dharma usually ended up here because of some suffering. That's not true for everybody, but I feel like that is certainly a very common tale is something happens in our lives, something tragic, something really difficult, something really painful, and then we, we find our way to this practice. We've seen, or we've tasted, or we've touched in a very real way the, the sort of tragic dimension of humanity. And it's a huge aspect of what the Buddha teaches, but again, it's not the end of the story, and we don't want to stay there. We don't want to stay in this kind of uh, over
overly self-acceptance around suffering, and it can actually give rise to a kind of cynical attitude about the world and about life, which would be the near enemy of wisdom, of panya, uh, something that can look like wisdom that's not wisdom, it's not complete, is sort of this, it's just all suffering and dukkha anyway, what's the point? <laughs> Some of you have been there perhaps. So I'll read it. I think I have it here somewhere. Uh -huh, and I do. It's only a paragraph. And this is the Buddha. The other thing I like about it is the first thing he says in the sutta is I considered. So he's sort of having a conversation with himself. And the context of the, the teaching is that he, as he did in his time, he would oftentimes travel around and visit different monasteries and visit people who were practicing the Dharma. And of course, it was a, a, a blessing and a treat for him to come visit. And so he goes to visit this monastery one day, and he goes into the groups of, group of monks practicing, and they, they, they're so happy that he's there, and they, they ask him very, very specifically, they're like, we were just discussing uh, the Dharma. And the Buddha sort of congratulates him and says, it's really great to talk about the Dharma, and it's... Uh, to share and to discuss is really, really uh, wholesome and good. Uh, but then they ask him, they say, well, could you tell us about what is this Dharma that you, what is this Dharma thing anyway? We were just talking about it, but we're not quite sure what it is. <laughs> and the Buddha says, I considered this Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and excellent. It's not confined by thought, it's subtle, it's sensed by the wise, and it cannot be come to through mere logic or reason. So he talks about it in this way of having kind of realized something, or come to something that's really quiet and excellent. And it, it doesn't, you don't come to it by like, you don't figure it out. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's not a conceptual understanding of sort of the nature of the universe of these things. It's really a radical, a radical shift in perspective, or really a shift in process. And so then he goes on to say why we don't see this. He says, but people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight, and revel in their place to see this ground. So what does he mean by that? So he's talking about what is it that gets in the way of being able to see this dharma, this way of things. And what gets in the way, and we can probably give ourselves an example, is we delight and we revel in, in, in our place. And what he means by place is sort of our identity. The number one identity, the identity that I'm a separate being in the universe. But also the, 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 the place of I'm a person who has this career, the place of my job, the role in my family, my race, my color, my gender, my identity. And of course, if we look at the modern world, right, like I am, I have a lot of different identities. And some of them I delight and I revel in, some of them I'm not so thrilled about. But I'm actually heavily preoccupied with the narrative 
and the experience of this Dave Smith character I can't seem to get rid of. <laughs> I'm so caught up in it, I'm so preoccupied in it. And of course I grew up in a culture that I was promised if I went to the right school and I got the right job and if I followed the right trail of breadcrumbs that I would be happy. You know, that's the American dream. Lasting happiness for me if I make the right choices. Which is as anti-dharma as it gets because the Buddha says no lasting anything. That's out. <clears throat> Permanent happiness? No. And for me, strike three. So, you know, like I was kind of conditioned in this anti-dharmic way. Um, the whole strategy that I was told, the strategy for life, um, got turned upside down in its head when I started to practice the Dharma. And I still delight in revel in those. It's not a bad or a wrong thing, but it limits me. This uh, idea of a place, of wanting to be safe, right? We want to be safe. I want to be in my car, in my neighborhood, in my little safe kind of individualistic bubble. But we know that that's not going to work. And so that's part of it. We don't see the Dharma. We don't see uh, the flow of events. We don't see the operating system, I think, is what he's talking about. Because we're so preoccupied, we're so caught up in our place, our role in society. And that's the other half of it, is he says, they not, not see this ground. And he uses this word ground. Uh, in the Pali, the word is tanam, which is also equivalent to some of you probably are familiar with the whole teachings of Paticca Samuppada, which is the teachings of dependent origination, or the 12 links of dependent origination, or dependent arising. It's talked about in different ways. Not a very exciting term. But when he's talking about what he awoke to, this is what he awoke to. He awoke to the causality, the causal nature of experience. That things are in constant flux. And that conditions arise. And just like the conditions in, in the external world are no different than the, than the internal world. He makes no distinction between internal and outer. And so what I mean by that is, you know, the Buddha oftentimes speaks in terms of agriculture because he grew up in an agriculture society. So he oftentimes talks in a metaphor of seed and fruit. So if I have a, if I have a elephant pan in Colorado, we have the best peaches. If I take a peach seed and I plant it in the ground and I give it constant care and attention over time, what will happen is fruition will happen and then I will have a delicious peach. So what happens if I take, if he takes that same, those are the conditions, the causes and the conditions that change a, a hard little rock-like seed into a delicious fruit. Well, if that's true out there, wouldn't it be true in here? Wouldn't it be true with the seeds of loving kindness? the seeds of wisdom, the seeds of generosity, the seeds of mindfulness. If, those, if I take those concepts internally and I give them constant care and attention, will, won't there also be fruition? And this is why this practice is so important to see it as a, a practice. And there's no end some game. You're never done. The whole process of meditation, of cultivation, is the word he uses, which I like, which is another agricultural term, the term bhavana, Sati bhavana, the cultivation of mindfulness. Metta bhavana, the cultivation of loving kindness. He talks about it very much in terms of, of cultivation, something that we're, we're. It's very algorithmic, actually, because what it does, it's a process that loops and branches, right? 
What do we do? We, our attention goes out and we bring it back to the breath. There's this looping quality to that. And as we loop, we branch out. We start to recognize aspects. Oh, I recognize that I get caught in worry. I get caught in fear. I get caught in these destructive mental states. And then I loop that and I get a little bit of wisdom. And every time I loop around, I'm getting better, better information about my experience. And I love this analogy because in, in our modern technological world, a lot of the scenarios they use, like al the idea of an algorithm. The Buddha's uh, teaching on meditation is entirely algorithmic. It loops and branches and it loops and branches, but it doesn't end. There's no, there's no finish line. We do this for the sake of doing this with no end sum goal in mind. The Buddha doesn't really do nouns very much. He does verbs. And also this idea of a ground of paticca samuppada is really verbal. It's what's happening. The Dharma is what's happening. Right? And it, 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 it's endless, and on and on it goes. And the more we incline our minds in these ways of wisdom and compassion, the more that's the kind of experience that we have. And the other side of this, he says, and also to see this ground the stilling of all inclinations, the relinquishing of bases, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana. So he goes from talking about the first noble truth, of kind of how it is, to the third noble truth, that part of what we're trying to see, the place, but the ground is also seeing the mind, that mind of non-reactivity, which is the third noble truth, or we call it nibbana sometimes. The term actually is nirodha, which means like something like destruction. Where there's a, and you've all been there, right? Probably many times today. Have you just been sort of in one of those moments where everything kind of seems okay and you're present, you know, what's going on and you feel at ease? There's something that has stopped. Right? And actually what he's talking about, he's, this whole end of suffering business, I think, is really part of the setup for many of us. He's not so much talking about the ending of suffering, but the ending of reactivity. The second noble truth, which is the whole teachings of Patita Samuppada, is that what arises, what happens is we get caught up, we get preoccupied. I can't be in the present moment. I'm not available. How often are you 100% available for what's happening in the moment without being preoccupied with some other narrative? in the background. I think 75, 25 is about as good as I can do most of the time. You know when I'm meditating. I'm like, I'm always like, yeah, well. I know they got clean chili down here. I'm like, yes, can't let it go, man. And so we're really trying to see, so as we let go of that reactivity, as we let go of this attachment and this need and this fixation around being in some stable place, then we experience the cessation, this nibbana. And then what arises out of that, of course, is the fourth noble truth, the entire path. And the whole way of living a life that is not dictated on a preoccupation of the place, and it's not conditioned on this constant state of reactivity. Some teachers call it a nibbanic sensibility. It's just a, it's really, actually, I don't think it's really anything all that special. It's not that profound. When the Buddha talks about his awakening, he's not talking about this big, epic kind of moment. So let's think about what he doesn't say in the 
Sutta, he doesn't use the word truth with a capital T. He doesn't talk about something being true or not true. He very well could have. He also um, doesn't talk about knowing. In Pali, the verb would be nya, and then a, like panya is wisdom. It's to know something, or sanya, perception is to know. He doesn't use it. He very, very well could have, and he did often. But in this particular sutta, he doesn't talk about waking up to knowing something, that he knows something about the nature of the universe that you don't know. It's not like he's smarter than us. He's not using that kind of language. He's also not using terms like ultimate or unconditioned. He's not talking about arriving at some supreme state. Right? And when I think about the word I almost never use, but when I think about Buddhist enlightenment, it carries with it such an, you know, it's like, you know, I look at the Buddhist, you know, tradition history, there's like maybe two or three people we maybe could think of, and the rest, it's like a couple people get it, a couple lucky folks along the way get it, and the rest of us just kind of grin and bear it. Right? Because how many times have you had this experience in practice where you're you're sitting, you're in your daily practice, maybe you're on a retreat, how much of your practice is kind of haunted by this idea that I'm waiting for something to happen? Which is a preoccupation with the place, the alignment place. Oh man, I'm telling you, I get that. Any of you ever been on a long retreat? And I, I, I like to famously say, there's nothing like a good sit in the morning to ruin the rest of your day. <laughs> you know, that after breakfast sit, or you, you do the morning instructions, you do a walk, you come in, it's like 10, 15, and for 45 minutes, you just own it. <laughs> like, I'm basically going to teach this retreat next year. <laughs> and then by 2 or 3 in the afternoon, you're ready to get in the car and leave. What happened? Well, the conditions changed. Did you notice the conditions changed? No, because I was so preoccupied with getting back to that 10, 15 sit. I had it. I had the present moment in my very hands. You had this? Where did it go? Is it in your glove box in the car, or is it just completely gone now? Completely gone now, let's be honest. The other thing he says that I want to kind of circle back to is he talks about this dharma being difficult to awaken to, but also there's there's an aspect of that that's talking about it being painful to awaken to, which is really, I think, his whole um, emphasis on being very clear and honest about this tragic dimension of life. Because when we, when, we, when we awaken to the process, he also talks about dukkha as being the reality of you know, birth, old age, sickness, and death. Right? We've all heard that. And now we read it, we just gloss right through it, we don't even put any emphasis on it. But that was his, you know, when we talk about the noble quest, I think about it, the Buddha had this quest, probably very much like everybody in this room. You were born into this world, you realized you were going to get old, you were going to die, 
maybe you had some stuff going on in your early life that didn't really work out, or you started to realize, oh man, this, there's a tragic dimension to this world. Things don't always go my way. I'm, I'm, getting th- I'm often getting things I don't want. Much of the time I'm getting what I don't want. I've been disappointed by so many different experiences. And I think the thing, the big setup for me has been two places it's talking about is first of all this idea of ending suffering. That the goal of the practice is to end suffering. I don't know if I'm even interested in that anymore. I wouldn't be sitting in this room right now if it wasn't for suffering. I would never practice the Dharma for one second. Also, if I found out that somebody in my family got a cancer diagnosis, or somebody important to me died, or which I've had those experiences, I have no, I don't want to not suffer. What would that even be like if some terrible loss and tragedy happens in our life, to not suffer over that just seems kind of like cold. So it's really built into the fabric of our experience. It's not the problem. It's the relationship and it's the way, it's what we, it's how we react to it. What do I do about suffering? Well, I don't like it and I push it away. And I blame others for it. You know, and part of this identity we get pulled in is just, if we look at our planet, everybody, you know, the way that we talk about politics and these people and those people and this race and that country, well, it's actually their fault and it's the evil corporations who are destroying the planet and and all this kind of, we're all posturing for a place of self-righteousness, which just gives rise to the emotion of contempt, which is the most destructive emotion in the human body. The idea of being better than somebody else. That's a very, very, that concept right there probably got us all into the trouble that we're in the first place on a global scale. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm better than you. You need to stop doing that. Right? That's kind of very easy, very convenient way in which we can sort of assert a kind of moral or superior high ground upon other people. You know, so when I think about the whole Buddhist endeavor, the first thing he's asking us to do is to be empathetic to, to the needs and the concerns and the pains of other people. He starts with compassion. You know, he starts with that. Although when we talk about the, I don't even like these Four Noble Truths because the word key, truth is so problematic. I really like Stephen Bachelor's teachings of the main tasks. And the task, the work, of the first noble truth is to embrace that, is to come to terms with the fact that you were born, you're gonna get old, you're gonna get sick, and you're gonna die, and things aren't gonna go your way, and a bunch of stuff you don't want to happen is gonna happen, and in the end we're gonna lose it all. And it's not a problem, it's just how it is. And so his whole uh, call towards that is, 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 is that a lot of times what we awaken to in, in, in this practice of dharma is that which is hard to be with. And then how do we use that as a, as a vehicle for liberation? So we're not being free from all of that. We're being free from the reactions towards that. We're being free from the aversion. We're being free from the blaming. 
we're being free from the contempt towards other people. That's what we're free from. It's almost like I feel like I've gotten, like I suffer plenty. I feel like I'm pretty good at it. Like I suffer pretty well. You know, I take it on, I'm like, oh. The emotional component, I'm like, I'm like, the Buddha was right, it's still really, really hard. How could it be otherwise? How could it be otherwise? And then we arrive in this uh, place of Nibbana, of, of having done some work around that. We've, we've embraced life. In fact, one of Stephen Bowser, he just translates Dukkha as life now, which I actually really quite like. Embrace life. In French, c'est la vie, right? The, the sort of uh, uh, package store, liquor store, bumper sticker, shit happens. You've seen it on the back of a car, right? Kind of a Dharma teaching, actually. Because you see it, you're like, yeah, sure does. <laughs> right? But not in this, I think that we have, and I'll talk about this more tomorrow night on my talk on War of Emotions, is we've kind of, and, and I don't blame anybody for this, and I, uh, I don't mean to speak about this in any negative way, but I think for some reason, uh, Dharma and the modern paradigms, we've kind of, we kind of gone, we kind of gone to war with suffering. We kind of got it backwards. And of course, of course, of course, mindfulness practice, and there is a, there is a, a, an alleviating of suffering that happens in practice. Please don't let me, don't hear that I'm not saying that. That there is a lot of, a secondary and types of suffering that we do get freedom from. But when we get down to sort of the suffering with a capital S, I think the, the practice of Dharma is really trying to come to terms with that in, in our own way. Not in a dogmatic kind of way or an understanding kind of way, but in a very uh, subjective kind of way. And we could all, we'd be here for hours and days, but we could all probably go around the room and everybody here, I'm sure, could tell a story about something that happened in your life that was painful and tragic and hard to be with. And there's also this tremendous emphasis in the practice on, on you know, this self, not self, but whether it's a self or not self, I think is really kind of irrelevant. But what he's talking about is, is there's an interconnectedness that is really our shared humanity, what they talk about in secular science, is that uh, we have a shared humanity. And when we get divisive, uh, and we kind of, uh, those people, when we become preoccupied with our place, and we want to keep certain people out of our place because they like our safe place, and those people need to be over here, and those people, this kind of control that we see on a global scale really boils down to what the Buddha is talking about in the sutta of a preoccupation with a place and not seeing uh, a ground. The interesting thing about the word ground also is uh, it means a couple of things. It's in Pali, it's called panam, which is part of Paticca Samuppada, which is dependent origination. But it's also the same exact word that you've all probably heard, satipatthana, which is mindfulness. Which is usually translation. That's usually translated as the foundation of mindfulness. But it's really grounding. It's a grounding. And here again, ground is not a noun. 
It's we're grounding our awareness and our attention in a, in a process that is moving. Right? In a process that loops and branches, which we could say is life. Life is a process. It's moving. You can't hit a pause. There's no pause button. You know? That we're in this kind of process that's going on. So we're trying to ground ourselves in that. And so this is why there's a lot of emphasis in mindfulness on present time awareness. To be in the grounding of what's actually happening in front of us. But I notice it like, in a, even on a moment-to-moment level, as I'm grounding myself in my experience, I'm constantly finding myself preoccupied with an idea that's associated with a place. Oh, gee, next week I gotta go to Durango. Or last week I was over here. Almost every distraction I have is about me being a person who needs to be in a place or get something done or pay a bill on time or... And it's just like almost like every moment it's just like, am I going to be in the, the grounding of my own experience? Or am I going to be preoccupied with this kind of place? And also we don't want to go to war against the place. It's again, not bad or wrong, but it's that middle, right? This middle way business turns out to be really hard. Because <laughs> you're like, you hear it, you're like, okay, he said play, place is bad, I gotta stop doing that. And like, no, dude. <laughs> you know, tell the IRS that you're just in your grounding experience. You know? you know, that's not gonna work. Tell, tell your mortgage company that, you know, like, come on, you guys are preoccupied with this place. <laughs> I mean, what is a house really? I mean, what is money? I mean, you guys are tripping. That's not gonna work. But, you know, how do we actually move through these, through these two kind of experiences? So as we become more free from this preoccupation, preoccupied, preoccupation with the place, as we become more grounded, the place becomes a lot more easier to manage. And we can really feel more into what, what, I, what I now call the, the happiness of being. Just a happiness of just being in my own experience and, and with some openness and some, you know, like I, I drove over here today, the drive over here was amazing. You know, and I was just like, you know, you know, going from place to ground, place to ground. I was like, I wish my kids were here so they could see it. Or I, you know, I kind of wanted to, I wanted to cut it up and put it in my pocket and take it with me and show it to you, right? And like, check out this place. But it's gone now. I mean, if you, I can show you where it is. If you want to go there, you can check it out. <laughs> it's not like that. So part of it is really just trying to um, to see part of part of part of the ground, the grounding, the moving. It, it is tragic. There is a tragic dimension, but there's also a beautiful dimension to it. And this both are true. Right? And this is sort of the Buddha's worldview: is that the, the is that life, the world, our minds. All of it has a tragic dimension and has a beautiful dimension. It's like that Gestalt picture, you know, the picture, if you look at it, it's two faces coming together. And if you do this little funny thing with your eyes, it's two candlesticks. You're like, well, is it tragic or is it beautiful? Well, it depends how you look at it. It's both. It's both and. Which is sort of the teaching on equanimity. Life is both. And so we have to negotiate that constantly through this kind of you know, algorithmic training of, 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 of coming back and constantly coming back and, and branching off and bringing the data back in. And, and, and we're never done. And this process, this path, is, 
is endless. And um, I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity in this lifetime to even be introduced to these ideas. And, uh, and the more I practice, the more I've gotten over, like the whole idea of getting it right. I gave up on that a long time ago. You know, that striving. And I need to, there's something I need to know about my life that's going to make it all better. And it's hard to remember that. So that's why I like to offer this teaching because it means a lot to me as, as an idea and I also find that it's very um, interesting to me that this is the oldest recorded uh, description of what the Buddha is talking about as, as he awoke and this is what, what he came to discover. So thank you for your kind attention. We have a little bit of time. I would be happy to hear any questions or comments you have about the talk.